Amen. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with all of you this morning. I am very excited about this message in particular, um, and, and I just want to say thank you. It is a privilege to be able to preach God's word here at this church. Um, but something else that uh, I am very excited about, something else that, that fascinates me, something that I, I actually enjoy studying is high performance. I'm fascinated by high-performing people. I'm blown away by high-performing teams. I mean, I'm talking about people that run Fortune 500 companies. I'm talking about teams that, that win the Super Bowl. I'm, I am amazed at what some people are able to accomplish. And as I study them, one of the things that becomes very clear is that to be a high-performing person to be on a high-performing team is no accident. If you want to be a high-performing person, there is a formula. There are things that you must do. You don't wake up one day a high-performing person. And perhaps one of the, the most incredible examples of a high-performing team is the Navy SEALs. Right? Everybody's probably here. You've heard of the Navy SEALs. They're one of the most elite squads in the world. What they accomplish with such a small team is, is absolutely unbelievable. But as I was preparing for this message, uh, one of the things that, that I thought about that I had never thought of before is the question, what happens next after someone becomes a Navy SEAL? Right? They go through all of this stuff and this incredible thing happens. They are selected to be on an elite team. But what's next? Well, I looked it up. There's a lot, actually. In fact, I found out that what makes a Navy SEAL effective in their mission is the training that comes after they are a Navy SEAL. There's ongoing requirements for physical fitness, tactical proficiency, and readiness for missions. There's training exercises, advanced skill development, team training for cohesion, and for proficiency. Becoming a Navy SEAL is no accident. There is a clear direction. There are clear orders. There's even clear models to follow of what they are to become. It's very obvious if you want to be an effective member of a Navy SEAL team, there are things that you have to do. Now, in our passage today, we are going to have the wonderful opportunity to look at what comes next after glorious salvation. And I, I think that a lot of us are prone, I know this is true for myself, but I think a lot of us are prone to get stuck in the what's next after salvation. So I'm going to read just a couple of things here. I'm just, it's just a quick list of things I put together. And I want you to see if you can, like me, relate to what I'm about to say. Okay? So here we go. I know the glorious gospel. I know that I am redeemed. I know that my position is secure. I know that I have peace with a holy and righteous God. I know that I now have his Holy Spirit residing within me. I know that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I know that I have direct access to the heavenly Father through the high priest, King Jesus. I know 
that I have been transformed from the domain or transferred from the domain of darkness into the glorious kingdom of light. I know that everything in my life is now transformed. For me, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I know that there is nothing more beautiful and more powerful than the reality of the gospel and what it has done for me. But now what? These, these incredible truths that I just read, they, they must amount to something, right? There has to be something measurable. There has to be something tangible. Is there something observable that should happen in my life? If everything has changed, why does it sometimes feel like nothing has changed? Why do I sometimes feel overwhelmed by the glorious gospel but underwhelmed by what it produces in my life or in the lives of others who have claimed Christ. If I am now a Navy SEAL, isn't there something I should do? If we are now on a team, an elite force, isn't there something that should be done by us? Well, if this is you, like it has too often been me, I've got great news. This passage is gonna directly address this. But our big idea, the thing that we're going to see, the thing that is going to get addressed is that redeemed people have a new mission and a clear model of obedience to Christ. Okay? Redeemed people have a new mission and a clear model of obedience to Christ. And I want to caution all of us before we start our passage today. I'm convinced that many of us actually struggle with this big idea, or at least, in the very least, we are led astray by erroneous thinking, and maybe worse, erroneous living. So um, I'm gonna, I, I put together another list. I'm going to read it in a second. But this list is different. This list is something that I think any of you who are members here who, or who claim Christ, you would say, mm, that's wrong. That's an error, and I, and I would agree. This, this list I'm going to read, it's wrong. There are errors in it. But I'm going to propose that sometimes our life and how we live would support those errors, okay? So once again, I'm going to read, and I want you to see, do you relate to any of this, or do you see any of this? I am a redeemed person, and nothing can take that away. The miracle already happened And what comes next doesn't matter as much. The gospel ended with my salvation. Mm, The gospel ends with others' salvation. What's, What's really important about the Great Commission is that people get saved. The rest is negotiable. There's no concrete clarity to what I must do after salvation. The majority of the Christian life is sort of this mystical experience, which I remain open to the Spirit. I just need to keep an open mind to what he's doing, 
after I took that step of repenting of my sins and trusting in Jesus, there are no more concrete steps that I have to take. Being open to what God is doing is enough. Now, when I made this list, it was actually painful for me because I can tell you that, that I certainly live sometimes as if those things are true. Remember our big idea, redeemed people have a new mission and clear model of obedience to Christ. So as we go into our passage this morning, I want you to recall last week if you were here and if you were not here, what happened? A heinous sinner got saved by the power of God, right? God's plan is not like our plan. He is able to save even the most heinous of lost souls. His plan can be trusted. Jesus Christ can and should be trusted, a miracle took place that someday. Someone who was an enemy of God became a family member of God. The power of God was on full display as a sinner was redeemed by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. But again, now what? What does Paul do next? I'm gonna propose that actually Paul's Life and what he does immediately after he is redeemed, immediately after he becomes a follower of Jesus, is a model that we can follow, that we can learn from. So we're going to begin our passage this morning, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this, but we're actually going to go back a little bit earlier than what my actual passage is. So go back to Acts 9:18b. We're going to start there because this is the first action we see Paul accomplish after he becomes a follower of Christ. What does it say? Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, so the first thing in the new mission, remember our big idea, the new mission, the first thing that Paul is going to model for us is believer's baptism. That's the first fill in the blank. Believer's baptism. I think it's kind of easy to miss this, but what has Paul not done for three days? He hasn't eaten or drink, drank anything in three days. If you have not had anything to drink in three days, you're in trouble. You're weak at the very best. And yet Paul demonstrates that his priority is to practice public obedience to Christ in that he would practice believers' baptism. We saw this earlier in Acts, didn't we? If we went back to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 38, after hearing the gospel that Peter preached, the question was, what shall we do? And the answer was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was the answer. What shall we do now? Paul later writes in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He also wrote in Galatians 3.27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. 
Again, this obedience, this first part of the mission, believer's baptism, is public identification with Christ. I'm not sure if you noticed, but those verses that I read are just riddled with things like in Jesus Christ, into Christ, into his death, with Christ. There's an identity that is publicly taking place in believers' baptism. But is not this into Christ also familiar? What is the church? It is the the body of Christ, right? Well, 1 Corinthians, Paul again, 12, 12 through 24 says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, through many, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Do you see here that baptism, this public obedience, this public identification with Christ is a mode in which we are baptized into the body of Christ, in which we identify with his physical body? If you were here last week for Ted's message, you remember what happened when Saul was blinded on the road and Christ said, why are you persecuting me? Because he's persecuting other believers. He's persecuting Christ's body. It works both ways. There's an identification process that takes place here in baptism. This is what is congruent with us at this church. We believe that when someone is baptized, they are also baptized into membership. Why? Because you're baptized into the body of Christ. There's no such thing as identifying with Christ and his body without belonging to the body. That's why we practice what we do here with believers' baptism and membership going hand in hand. So, Paul is outwardly demonstrating, he's making public what has happened inwardly within his heart. He's demonstrating what has happened heavenly in his position before God. This is a priority for him. This is part of the mission. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the first thing you must then do is obey him by identifying with him in believer's baptism. You must publicly identify yourself as belonging to Christ, as being placed into Christ. You must declare that you have died to your old self and that you have been raised again in Christ. I'm gonna, um, just for a second, I'm gonna share something incredibly personal and insanely heartbreaking to me, okay? I have had over the years the wonderful privilege of praying the sinner's prayer with people who are repenting. I have had the opportunity to take people's hand who say, I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ and I have been able to pray with them and listen to them, declare their sins before a holy God and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And all of you are saying, what's heartbreaking about that, Stephen? To my knowledge, not one of them is still walking with the Lord today. Not one. And I have no way of knowing if this is the reason why, but I'll tell you something that I wish I did that I did not do. 
I did not ask of, I did not push, I did not teach, and I did not even make aware to these people, believers, baptism. And there's a part of me that thinks, why on earth should I be shocked that people who proclaim the name of Christ never publicly identified with him, why should I be shocked that they're not publicly identifying with him today? Believer's baptism is important. It's part of the mission as we see modeled here by Paul. Well then, not surprising, the second thing in the new mission, I've kind of already alluded to it, that Paul models for us so well, is meaningful membership. Okay, that's your second fill in the blank. Meaningful membership to the body of Christ. We read in Acts 9, 19b, this is Paul, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The first thing Paul does after baptism is he goes and he finds disciples, other believers in Christ to do life with. And I don't want to miss, miss this. I don't, want to, I don't want to make this too academic for anybody. Think about this. How humbling, how embarrassing, and how important Paul must think this is if he goes and he finds other believers to do life with. What was he just doing? He was persecuting them. Can you imagine? Walks up, knock, knock, knock. Hi, it's me. I was just trying to throw you in jail. Can I come worship? That's crazy. He must find this a priority. This must be a humbling moment for him. And yet that's what he does. He goes and he, he seeks out other people to do life with because Paul understands that he belongs to a new kingdom with new citizens. That his salvation and baptism have given him a new family. What does he write in Colossians 1, 13 through 14? That Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself. As what? Sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of will. Paul knows he's in the family. What's he got to do? He's got to join the family. And, and, and what did Nate just pray uh, earlier in this, this sermon or in this message? Nate prayed all these one another's. Help us to love one another. Help us to exhort one another. A wonderful list, a wonderful prayer because it's biblical. Paul understands in John 13, 35, when Christ says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you, do you remember um, last week what Ted said about Paul's conversion? That the, the words that we would really like to be there are just not there. That it doesn't say, and Paul repented and, and trusted in Christ. It doesn't say those things that we would like to see written there. But, but what did Ted say? The evidence is overwhelming. I'm proposing that membership, meaningful membership to a local body of believers is just like that. You are not going to open up your Bible and find a place that says, and you have to become a, local, a member of a local church. You're not gonna find it. But if you examine the scriptures, if you look at all those one another commands, how does that take place if you are not doing life and you are not living committed life with other believers. 
This is um, not a sermon on membership. It was very tempting to make it one. Um, but uh, if, if, if I'm going to go through a couple of things, and if you are still not convinced that this is part of the mission, uh, we've got books that we can recommend. We've got resources. Um, we're probably even going to have a class later on in the future um, that addresses this topic because we do believe it is important. But here are just a, quick thing, a couple of quick things I want to highlight so that you are convinced that this is part of the mission. You cannot complete the task of loving one another unless you do life with one another. If I say that I love my wife and I tell her that I love her, but I do not include her in any aspect of my life and I do not do life with her, I do not love her. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Pastor Billy on his last message here charged all of us to demonstrate, to hold dearly, to fight for unity with one another. Why? Because Pastor Billy knows that this is part of the mission. Pastor Billy knows that when, when we live life together, committed within a local body, it proclaims the name of Christ. Remember John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So, at this church, we believe meaningful membership is a non-negotiable for the believer. Um, in fact, the, the very analogy of a body demands cohesion, all right? I like to consider that I'm a halfway decent physical therapist. I have seen people's lives literally transformed by going through the rehabilitation process. I've seen people who can't walk, walk again. And it's a wonderful thing. But I can tell you right now that if you came to me with a severed arm and set it in front of me and said, Stephen, can you rehab this for me? No can do. Not gonna happen. Why? Because it's not attached to the body. Because the lifeblood of Christ is not flowing through it, right? If you find yourself in a place today where you are frustrated, is God using me? Where is my role within the church? How am I supposed to function? If you're wondering those types of things, my question to you and my, my plead to you of where to start would be, where are you connected to the body of Christ? Where are you committed to the body of Christ? If you are severed from the body, no can do. It doesn't work. You must be connected to the body. So you, this, even this analogy of, of cohesion, it, it demands that we work together, that we are in unity, that we are with one another. And if, if you aren't convinced, convinced of this yet, later we see in our passage that Paul again models the importance of this. He has to leave Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem. And what's the first thing he does at Jerusalem? He goes and he seeks out believers. Again, we read in Acts 9, 26 through 28, it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
Now, this is just a, a side note here, um, but at this church, this is how we actually believe membership takes place. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, is that we see being modeled here that membership is a two-way street. There's a responsibility on the person who wants to become a member. That person's life must testify that they look like a Christian, that they follow Christ. There must be evidence that they are a Christian. But at the same time, there's a responsibility of the people of the local church to examine that person's life and to say, do they look like a Christian? That's what we see here, right? Paul comes and he says, I want to belong to the local church. And the local church goes, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. And it requires someone who got to know Paul, got to know his testimony, and then testified on behalf of Paul, no, he looks like a Christian. All right, here's the analogy. Ron, can you stand up real quick? Um, this isn't from me. I got, I got this from somewhere else. But um, membership is like a handshake, right? I want to shake Ron's hand. What do I have to do? I have to stick my hand out. Now, what does Ron have to do? He has to take my hand. Two people are grasping here, right? Interestingly enough, when I want to leave, don't let go of my hand, and I let go, what, is, what does Ron have to do as well? He has to let go, right? That's why at our church, thank you, you can have a seat. That's why at our church, we believe that membership is a two-way street, that there's this uh, model we see even here, that we have a responsibility as a local church to examine the lives of those who would want to join, but the person who wants to join has a responsibility to look like a Christian. So when we have members meetings and someone is leaving from the church, that's why we actually vote them out. That's why there's this stamp of approval. Yes, they're in good standing. They can go. Just as we chose to hold on, we had to choose to let go. So if you're someone here who is not a member of the church, but you're thinking you want to join the church, this is part of the mission. If you've been redeemed and you've been baptized in believer's baptism, you must now find a local group of believers to be discipled in and to do life together with. You must have meaningful membership within the body of Christ. Obey Christ, find a local church, and commit to it. It's the second part of the mission that we see modeled here. Do you guys see the big idea coming together? Remember the big idea? Redeemed people have a new mission and a clear model. What have we seen the mission is so far? Believer's baptism, meaningful membership. Who is it modeled by in this passage? Paul. Paul's modeling this mission for us. So we come to our third thing in the new mission that Paul is going to model for us so well. Your third fill in the blank is powerful proclamation. The third part of the mission is powerful proclamation of Jesus Christ. I find this interesting. Before we even dive into this passage, who was somebody that Paul saw model the powerful proclamation of Jesus Christ? Stephen, right? The, Paul was a witness to Stephen standing with his face looking like a fearsome angel before everyone, powerfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul already had it modeled for him. So what does he do? He goes and he, he immediately, Acts 9.20 says, immediately proclaimed who? 
Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Now, I want to spend as much energy, as much of my emotion, and as much of my time as I can on this third point. And here's why. I'm convinced, at least for myself, that it's not a hard thing to say, hey, the mission is baptism. The mission is membership. It is a hard thing to say. The mission is to proclaim Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that this is where, bo- where we tend to veer off mission the most. So when I'm preaching this section, if, if at all you hear a frustration come across my voice, this is not because I am frustrated with any of you. This is because I am frustrated with myself. As I have studied this, as I have learned about this, I am incredibly convicted that the name of Jesus Christ is too often far from my lips. But I'm also convicted that if there's a part in this message where I'm going to lose anyone, it's going to be this part here. Because there's going to be a temptation for you to immediately think, "Mm, Stephen, that sounds a bit extreme. That's not for everyone. I'm not convinced that's part of the mission. And so I would urge you, please weigh these next words that I have carefully. Compare them to this grid of scripture. See if you are convinced that the mission includes the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Paul understands that the proclaiming of Jesus Christ is a part of the mission. But let's go back for a second and look at Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus is talking and this is what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be, whose witnesses? My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Whose witnesses are we as disciples to be? Jesus Christ's witnesses. You will be my witnesses. How can you be a witness for someone whose name you do not identify? Perhaps even more pertinent to this passage, though, you go a little bit further, and this is um, dealing with the apostles. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The apostles are standing before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. They've just been persecuted, thrown into jail. And there's this confrontation that takes place. And the, the, the apostles, they respond with this. They say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why are the disciples so specific? Couldn't they have said there's no other God? There's, there's no other faith? There's no other belief. There's no other understanding. No, they say there's no other name. Take it a little bit further. This religious group, they're willing to barter with the disciples. They're willing to negotiate. They're willing to say, hey, you know what? You can teach. You can even continue to do miracles. Just please don't use the name of Jesus Christ. And the apostles say, no, no can do. 
It's the name that saves. There's no other. Go a little bit further. Acts 8, verse 35. We recently learned the story of Philip with the eunuch. And the eunuch is searching the scriptures. And Philip is brought up with him and the eunuch asks him, could you explain these to me? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture that the eunuch, that the eunuch was looking at, he told the good news about who? Jesus. He told the good news about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.2, this is Paul speaking later on. He actually says when he writes this letter, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. Paul understands that the mission is to proclaim Christ. And there's going to be a temptation that you can live as a Christian and not actually have to speak the name of Jesus Christ. And what I am telling you, what I am convicted of, what I believe that scripture teaches is that there is no such thing. If you are to be on mission for Jesus Christ, his name must come out of your mouth. You must testify to the Savior. So let's just do this quick, honest evaluation. Do it with yourself right now. When was the last time you told anyone, and I mean even a believer, even someone here at this church, that you believed Jesus Christ is the Son of God? When did those words come out of your mouth last? The church is a wonderful place in which we can bolster one another, remind one another in trials and difficulties. No, 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 wait. Don't you remember? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's a harder question, though. You know I'm going to ask it. When's the last time you told someone who still needs to know Jesus? the name of Jesus Christ? When's the last time that you pointed someone in the direction of the Savior by naming him? If I wasn't already specific enough, just humor me, please. I want to get very specific because I think there is a dynamic here that is just non-negotiable and essential for us as Christians, okay? So, here we go. Our faith is not merely an ideology. It is not simply that we have understood rightly and believed in the correct process of salvation. No, our faith is based on a living God. His name is Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth who spoke about himself to us in this Bible right here. He's a God who told us that he is holy and just and he has warned us that what is holy always consumes what is unholy. 
He has told us and made us aware that we are all sinners and in no uncertain terms that our sin makes us unholy before him. That each and every one of us was born into sin, offending his great holiness. That we deserve nothing but wrath and separation from a holy God. That we are born into war against him. But... He has also told us that our faith is in a living and breathing Savior whose name is Jesus Christ, who was born on this earth, who died for the sins of the world. It is Jesus Christ who does the saving. It is Jesus who satisfies the wrath of a holy God. It is Jesus who made for us to have a way to have peace with God. He must be proclaimed. His name must be exalted. It is Jesus Christ who who does the saving. Now, I wanna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an analogy here that just to make this very clear, the tangibleness of this Savior, the realness of, of who he is, okay? Um, at my house, my kids have this wonderful thing called a candy bowl. And we have this candy bowl intentionally set up really high so that they can't get to it, Okay? They cannot get to this candy bowl. But all of my kids are very, very, very aware of the process that they must go through to get candy down from the candy bowl. Do you know what the process is? You have to ask. Who do you have to ask? For sake of this example, you have to ask daddy. You have to go to daddy and ask daddy to get candy down from the candy bowl. I mean, you could even go as far in this analogy to say that my children understand the process so well, they could bring all their friends and they could all tell them of this wonderful process that takes place in which candy comes down from the candy bowl. But if they don't ask daddy to do what they cannot do, there's no candy. They have to come to me. They have to bring their friends to me. They don't ask me. There's no candy. No matter how well they understand how that's supposed to take place, I'm the one that brings it to them. What I'm getting at is that the gospel is, uh, the belief that the gospel is true is not enough. James 2.19 says, even demons believe and shudder. Demons aren't redeemed. Demons are certainly not saved. But even they believe This is why we believe here at this church that repentance must be a part of salvation. Why? Because repentance by definition is not only turning away from your sin, but it is turning to a specific person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Repentance is that process in which you look away from your sin and you look to the one to do what you cannot do. You have to meet the Savior. One must turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. He must be a, pro a part of the salvation process. He must be experienced. To sum all of this up, if I could not be any more clearer, no Savior, no salvation. You must meet the Savior, for only He can do the saving. Now, there is spiritual warfare when you bring the Savior into a dark world. 
What does Ephesians say? Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Have any of you ever experienced the resistance that comes when you try to actually say the name of Jesus Christ? When you get to that moment and you know that's the next thing to come out of your mouth, is there not this quick temptation to think, mm, I can skirt around his name and I can still get the gospel in there? I've experienced it. I've experienced that immediate temptation that takes place. Let me demonstrate this real quick. Um, at my office in the mornings uh, for physical therapy, um, I get there early to set up the clinic and stuff, and I put on worship music, all right? And sometimes patients, coworkers, things like that, they come in and they sit down, they wait, the coworkers come back and unpack their stuff, and until the clinic actually opens, I continue to play worship music. Nobody's ever complained, it's never been a problem, nothing like that. But um, I've noticed something. I've noticed that when songs are played that say things like, and this is one of my favorite songs, so this is not a knock on the song. Um, I love this song. But only a holy God. I'm more comfortable with everybody hearing that song than I am, say, a song like, all glory be to Christ, our King, all glory be to Christ. There's something that makes me more uncomfortable that we've just named a very specific way for salvation it's really narrowed down to this one belief in this one person, in this one individual. That makes me more uncomfortable. Um, I could also, uh, I, could, I could demonstrate this with the philosophy of leadership, right? Even here at our own church, right? There's, we, we are all in agreement. We just had a members meeting not long ago that we believe scripture teaches in a plurality of elders, a plurality of shepherds, people who, who would have authority here at the church. Now, that belief that we need that is very different than actually naming a person. It's one thing to say, yeah, yeah, I like that idea. It's an entirely different thing to say, oh, I, you want me to submit to and listen to and give authority to that person? That's different, right? That's different. But there's something else here too that I want you guys to see. Here's what it is. When you proclaim a name, it invokes a responsibility onto the one that you are proclaiming. Okay, let me demonstrate this real quick. And this is true, okay? This is a true example, all right? Wholeheartedly, I could come to any of you and I could say, hey, there's this one pastor. He's one of the best preachers I have ever heard. His sermons I have learned more from than any other preacher. And some of his messages are the best messages I have ever heard. That's different than me coming to you and saying, Pastor Stephen Merck is one of the best preachers I have ever heard. Some of his messages are the best messages and the most powerful messages and the ones that I've learned so much from compared to anyone else. I can get away with this example because he's not here this morning, right? And he's a humble guy. If he was sitting here, Pastor Stephen would be cringing inside like, cut it out, don't. Why? Because now there's a responsibility on him. I've pointed all of your eyes to him and I've put an expectation on him. The same is true with Jesus Christ. When you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're taking the responsibility of salvation and you're placing it into the capable hands of the Savior. This is wonderful. This is what we want to do. So use the name of Jesus Christ.
Now, we've already said that this is warfare, that this is hard. And I know that. I've experienced that, okay? But there's this principle that we find within Scripture in this passage that is going to just let us, okay, maybe this is possible, all right? Here it is. Obedience before strength, okay? Obedience before strength. Let's read Acts 9, 20 through 22, and I'll unpack that for you. And this is talking about Paul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief's priests? What do we see? Paul's getting resistance. He's proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ and there's resistance, there's doubt. But what comes next? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the Christ. I think all of us, at least me, I wish that it said, and Paul was strengthened by Jesus Christ to proclaim Jesus Christ and he did it. That's not what it says. It says that Paul obeyed, Paul proclaimed Christ, and then strength came. We see this model for us all over the Bible and specifically in Acts. Let me just, just show you a couple of places. Um, in the beginning, we have this, this uh, in the beginning of Acts, we have this moment where the disciples have been told to obey Christ by waiting for the Holy Spirit. What happens when they obey and they wait? They first obey. The Holy Spirit comes and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and then powerful proclamation of Christ takes place. What happens a little bit later after they have proclaimed Christ? They're thrown into jail. Acts 4.8, after they're thrown into jail, after they've obeyed, after they've been persecuted, then it says in Acts 4.8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, answered the council. They first obeyed, then strength came. I mean, you even see this in the story of Exodus, right? When Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, there's this, this uh, element of obedience where we're going to follow God. We're going to be his promised people. We're going to go where he says to go. And God literally leads them to where they can't even take another step in obedience. Literally. And then God's power shows up and the waters part. Brothers and sisters, please do not believe the lie that you must feel strong to obey God. Obedience to God is so often the means by which our strength is to come. Obedience to God is the means in which our strength comes. You know, um, earlier I, uh, I made this statement uh, I said that uh, one of the benefits of the local church is that we can proclaim Christ to one another, that we can remind one another of Christ. I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, demonstrate uh, this uh, for, all, for all of you this morning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna demonstrate this, this wonderful and amazing thing about um, 
us being able to proclaim the name of Christ uh, to one another this morning. So, so uh, he doesn't know that I'm going to do this, but um, you know, he's my brother-in-law, so I'm going to try to get away with it. Nate, could you please stand up real quick? Now, Nate, only if you believe this, I want you to boldly proclaim to all of us that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, stay standing just for a second, all right? Mom, would you mind standing just for a moment? Only if you believe it, would you please boldly proclaim that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Jeff, would you stand up just for a moment? Would you please, only if you believe it, would you proclaim to everyone here that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Okay, now um, we're gonna get a little Catholic just for a second. If, uh, if, you, um, if you believe this, if, if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this moment is for you. If you have not, there's no judgment here, but I want, um, if you have not, I want you to see what's about to take place. But if you have, please stand. Now, we are all going to powerfully proclaim together, we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Are you ready? Okay. We believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, man, I got goosebumps. I was, I was really hoping that wasn't going to be lame. Um, <laughs> uh, that was awesome. Did, that, did not something feel right about that? Did not something feel like this is what should be taking place? It should be. This is something that should be taking place. So we should be taking advantage of this, and then we should take it a step further. We should go out, and we should tell those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ, and we should proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our big idea. The big idea is what? Redeemed people have a new mission and clear model of obedience to Christ. Do you see it unfolding? We have believer's baptism, meaningful membership, powerful proclamation, all modeled by Paul, and the fourth and final thing we see in this new mission that Paul models for us so well is devoted discipleship. That's the last fill in the blank. Devoted discipleship. We read in Acts 9, 23 through 25, that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The first several times I read this, I missed it. Paul already has disciples. His being faithful to the mission in believer's baptism, in meaningful membership, and in powerful proclamation of Jesus Christ has led to followers of Jesus Christ. Paul already has disciples. And you know what? We know that it's a genuine relationship. Why? They're the ones who rescue him. They love him. They care about him. They're the ones that see to that he gets away. I want to point out something obvious, though. If we're not doing a good job in the powerful proclamation of Jesus Christ, this fourth part of the mission is not taking place. 
proclamation of Jesus Christ has to come first. And so let's do this honest evaluation with ourselves real quick. How is it going? If I was to ask you, how has your proclamation of Jesus Christ led to more followers of Jesus Christ? What's the answer? For me, it's poor. It's very poor. It's dreadfully poor. It's something I'm ashamed about. But I don't want this, as John um, did our call to worship this morning, he was absolutely right. I don't want this to be a moment of just unbearing guilt upon your shoulders. Instead, I want to offer all of us just, just a suggestion or idea of where we can start this process if it's not going well up until this point, okay? And if it is going well for you, if, if that's you, this is not a joke, I'm not saying this flippantly at all. If that's you, when I ask that question and you're saying, yes, this is actually, God is producing disciples by how I'm living my life and proclaiming the name of Jesus, I want you to come talk to me. I'm meaning that in all sincerity, I need to learn from you, okay? But if you're like me and you're saying, this is not going as well as I think it should. I want to encourage you that there's a clear way we can start doing this and this, that is within our homes, okay? Parents, how often do you proclaim the name of Jesus and his good gospel in your home to your children? Spouses, how often do you remind one another of the great Savior, his name, and what he has accomplished within your life? I, I will tell you right now, over the last like six months to a year, I have been greatly encouraged by what I have seen by some of the families here at this church. Um, I don't know um, if any of you guys know this, uh, but uh, Johnny Green was convicted a while back that he was not doing um, Bible time well with his family. And you know what he does now? He sets an alarm on his phone. Every night at 8 p.m., it goes off and it reminds him that he needs to teach the Bible to his children. Is that not incredible? David, David Drucker was evaluating his role as a father and he was greatly convicted of this and he changed the bedtime routine to the point now where his son comes to him every night and says, Daddy, can we read about Jesus? Is that not incredible? Uh, Dr. Mike read a book about habits within the household and he was convicted that one thing he, could, he should start doing and could start doing is pray with his family before they go out for their day. And he started. And Shelly, is that not wonderful? It is. It's wonderful. I would encourage you, if, that, if you are in this boat, if you have taken this as a priority to make disciples within your own home, don't stop. And if you are not doing that, that well, start. Start with your family. I truly believe that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he must know how to manage his household well. I truly believe the reason for that is, is that if, if an elder cannot manage his own household well and, and he cannot proclaim the gospel to his children and to his family, how could he ever be effective in the church? How could he ever be effective in the world? It must start in the home. I truly believe that that's why that conviction or that qualification is there. 
So are you teaching your family the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are disciples being made in your home? Remember the big idea. Redeemed people have a new mission and a clear model of obedience to Christ. We've just gone over the entire mission. What is it? Believer's baptism, meaningful membership, powerful proclamation, devoted discipling. All modeled here by Paul. But you know what's really interesting? The whole time I was preach, uh, preparing to preach this, two things came into my head. One, the first thing was, is that Paul is really modeling Christ. Christ did every single one of these things. Two, Paul's simply obeying the Great Commission. What did Josiah read earlier in Matthew 28? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul was obeying and following the Great Commission. Now, in closing, what was the result of one man being faithful to the mission, the new mission? What was the result of that one man modeling the new mission? Go to the end of the passage, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Church, would it not be a tragic thing if somebody became a Navy SEAL and they did nothing afterwards? And when the mission came, they were not an effective team member? Wouldn't that just seem odd? But it's such a great thing. Such a life-changing thing. You did nothing? Church, let us be known for being faithful to the mission. Let us celebrate believers' baptism. Let's make a big deal about it when someone wants to publicly identify what has taken place in their heavenly position before God. Let us make that known that this is the first and right step and make it a celebration when it takes place. Let us be committed to one another in love so that our committed covenant here in a local church would proclaim the gospel of Christ that we are his disciples. Let us be known for his literal name to be always on the tip of our lips, ready to be said. And let us be devoted to making disciples in accordance to the mission. When we do that, what did we see the result was? The church had peace and it multiplied for the glory of God. If you're here this morning and you have been stuck in the what's next and you have lost clarity, it is here in how Paul modeled for us what a life looks like after salvation. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this man, Paul. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to this man and thank you for his faithfulness to the mission. 
the fact that we can look in scripture and that we can get clarity on what you would have us to do and how you would have us to obey. God, I ask now that you would help us to meditate on these things, that we would be sensitive to your convictions, that we would examine ourselves, help us to be faithful for the mission. And Lord, please help us to be faithful modelers of the mission for the next person. I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.